John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his water will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would pour out your water, the water of life on us. May it be a well springing up in our hearts to water this town, this state, this nation, and this world. Father, bless our reading of your word that we might hear and believe and receive this water of life. And in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It is uh, definitely a pleasure to be with you. I've really enjoyed uh, my time the past couple of days, and it's uh, a real blessing to be able to worship with you now. Um, back in Moscow, I've been preaching my way through uh, the Gospel of John, which I think you all have, have just started. So I preach at the Christ Church downtown service. And so in that series, I'm pulling out from that series um, a number of themes and kind of putting them all together uh, and... Um, focusing on this particular passage, but I'll be jumping all around the Gospel of John. Now, the, um, this passage starts here in verse 37. It says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So the first question is, what's the feast that he's talking about? Because this is all connected and, um, and needs to be considered in the context of what's actually going on there. Um, it's the last day of the Feast of Booths. If you keep reading, you figure out that out, that he's at the Feast of Booths, and it's the last day of the Feast of Booths. And the, the Feast of Booths is one of the three great um, pilgrim feasts. If you remember uh, in the Old Testament, you have three pilgrim feasts where, where you're, you're, if you're a Jew, you're supposed to travel from wherever you are back to Jerusalem for each of these uh, three feasts. Um, and so you've got Jesus here at the Feast of Booths, and it's the end of the, the celebration. And, and I would argue, and I think it's, you can make this case pretty clearly, that the Feast of Booths, or it was also called um, the, the Feast of Tabernacle or um, Sukkot in the Hebrew. Um, uh, Sukkot is just the plural of Suk, which is the, the tent or the booth that they would make when they would celebrate the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths is celebrating kind of two things. It's, first of all, it's, it's sort of like a harvest of... Uh, festival. They're celebrating the harvest and God's provision to them, but they're also celebrating um, God's provision of the Israelites during the Exodus. When they, when they left Egypt and then traveled uh, into the promised land, God preserved them during that time. And during this time, they're basically camping, right, as they, as they move. And so to celebrate God's provision for uh, Israel during the Feast of Booze, then each year they all gather in Jerusalem and camp out as a nation in uh, the streets of Jerusalem for a week to celebrate uh, God's provision, and it becomes this real festival. So it, it really ends up being, I, I would argue, Israel's most popular of all of the um, of all of the pilgrim feasts. It, this becomes the premier feast, and it was funny because when I was first sort of studying up on Feast of Booze, I think I always assumed that Passover would probably have been the most popular, just because from a Christian perspective, it's at Passover that Jesus um, is crucified, and so I always just thought that must be the the, the main one. But if you look back, it, the Feast of Booths is actually the most popular. This is the one that gets everybody really excited. If you could imagine basically um, Christmas 
Fourth uh, of July and your birthday all happening um, on one day, except for it's not one day, it's eight days spread out and everybody has traveled together to just have this long party. That's what the Feast of Booze was like. It was this um, amazing celebration and it's the end of Feast of Booze that Jesus gets up uh, to say this. Um, now, the reason for the popularity for the Feast of Booze, the reason it becomes such a big deal, has to do with this tradition that is um, kind of added to the way the Feast of Booze is celebrated. So between um, the, the writing of the Old Testament and then the coming of Jesus, that period is referred to as the intertestamental period, kind of after the Old Testament is done, but before the New Testament begins. In that intertestamental period, there are all these traditions about how you celebrate these different festivals. And, <coughs> excuse me, Feast of Booths gets all these extra kind of traditions that spice it up. Um, if you look at uh, the book of Zechariah, so we're right at the end of the Old Testament now, and it's right at the end of Zechariah, um, in Zechariah uh, chapter 14, I'll read verses 16 and 17. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles, the feast of booths or Sukkot. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. I'll go one more verse. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to the keep the feast of tabernacles. So right at the end of the Old Testament, you have this prophecy that, if you, uh, that everybody needs to come to the Feast of Booths and those that don't come to the Feast of Booths, that on them there will be no rain. Rain will be withheld from their nation if they don't celebrate the Feast of Booths. And so what happens is you start to have this added element to the way they celebrate the Feast of Booths. You know they're celebrating the harvest and God's provision of the crops, but um, in the calendar, the Feast of Booths happens right before the rainy season begins. And coincidentally, this would have been, I think, two weeks ago was when um, uh, Booths was being um, celebrated in the, um, in the Jewish like liturgical calendar. So we just finished it. Um, and then the rainy season begins. And so the rainy season is about to happen. And, and Zechariah has said that if you don't celebrate booths, then, uh, then the rain will not come. You, you'll, you'll have rain withheld from your land. And so there started to be this kind of element of that booths is about praying for the rain that is to come, the, rain, the, the coming rainy season. So because of this passage from Zechariah, this feast becomes associated with prayer for rain for the upcoming season. And this focus um, evolved into an additional element to the Feast of Booths celebration. And so in the morning of the feast, and this is the eight days of the feast, in the morning of the feast on every morning, the, the priest would go down, the high priest would go down to the pool of Siloam, which you know from other um, stories in the Gospel of John. He goes down to the pool of Siloam and he, he fills a silver pitcher with water from the pool of Siloam and then goes back up and enters the city. And he enters the city through what's called the water gate and it's called the water gate because that's where the water comes in for this particular festival. It's named after this festival. And the street is lined with other priests that have those, those shofar, those crazy horns, and they're blowing the horns as the priest comes in uh, with the water. Now, normally every morning, the priest would offer up uh, sheep, grain, and oil on the altar and would pour wine on the corner of the altar. But during 
the Feast of Booths, during Sukkot, the priest poured the water that had been brought up from the Pool of Siloam along with the wine on the corner of the altar. And this becomes like this really important part of the ceremony. Um, normally, th then after, th after this, then um, there would be an afternoon sacrifice. And then after the afternoon sacrifice, this party would start. And the party was every, every day of the Feast of Booze. They would start this party. A huge crowd would gather in the courtyard of the temple. Um, and they would stay in, until evening and actually basically through the whole evening and, and frequently through the entire night. Um, enormous candelabras were set up throughout uh, the, the courtyard. They, when I say enormous, I mean over 100 feet tall, these candelabras that lined the courtyard. Um, if you were a, a young boy in, in um, Jerusalem at this time, you might be fortunate enough to be, um, or your mother would think unfortunate enough, to be chosen to, to be the kid who climbed the candelabra with torches over 100 feet into the air, lighting all of the candelabra all the way up until you had this, this um, just the whole courtyard lined with, with just blazing light and torches um, everywhere that would go through the night. Then after that, multiple um, Levitical bands, which that's a new uh, thing. We, we maybe need to think about how you incorporate this, but they had Levitical bands that start playing all throughout the courtyard as the party starts to get going. And they combine, um, and it would be wonderful to see how this would work out, but they would combine basically Levitical bands playing instruments with psalm singing and dancing all somehow working together, kind of all through the night with this um, blazing light. Um, dancing, and then the, the, the dancing itself, then like the high point of the dancing was when it turned into acrobatic tricks. So you'd have like gymnastic displays going on throughout uh, the, the courtyard in, in the temple. Um, if you remember uh, Gamaliel, uh, Paul tells us in Acts 22 that, that he was raised at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was this great and famous rabbi of the time, and Paul was a, a young man being discipled to, um, by him to grow up to be a great rabbi himself. <clears throat> Gamaliel had a son, probably the same age as Paul. So when we think of um, Paul growing up at Gamaliel's feet, I'm assuming uh, Gamaliel's son was his close friend, Shimon ben Gamaliel. So this would have been uh, one of Paul's uh, close friends, I would assume. Um, and and uh, according to tradition, tra to tradition, he does, Shimon ben Gamaliel does distinguish himself as a great rabbi as well in, in the footsteps of his father. But he's not just another great rabbi. Um, also, one night at the Feast of Booths, um, he earned him for himself a spectacular reputation throughout all of Jerusalem for being able to juggle a total of eight flaming torches with one hand without allowing them to touch one another and then finishing it all off with a handstand on two fingers. Um, so, and I'm not making that up. That's, that, that is uh, the account of what was going on at this festival. So this is like a spectacular and rowdy party that goes through the night for eight days and it all culminates on the last day where they make it all the way to the sunrise the next morning and have a final service uh, to greet the sunrise and to end um, the feast. Um, the Mishnah, one of the earliest traditions, um, uh, writings that, that, that um, uh, holds the traditions of this time. In the Mishnah, it says that one who had never witnessed the rejoicing at the place of the water drawing, which is what the ceremony was, one who had never witnessed the rejoicing at the place of water drawing had never seen true joy in his life. 
Like you, you, this, this is the most spectacular and amazing festival of all time. And if you've not been there, then you don't know what joy really is. So that's why I say this was like Christmas, uh, your birthday, the 4th of July, all happening and spread out over eight weeks. Um, so then in the context of that, okay, so you got that description of this amazing festival. It's really striking that Jesus stands up at the end of that and says, um, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me to drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And, and it's really striking because this whole festival is all about coming and praying for God to send the water. He's praying and coming to, uh, to come and send the rain. And they are at the high point of the whole festival. I mean, this, this, is, this is the best that life has to offer. And it's at that point that Jesus stands up and says, actually, this isn't the water you need. If you want real water, you need to come to me. I'm the one with the living water. Um, they are, the, the Jews that he is speaking to at this moment in the festival, they're just like the Samaritan woman at the well in chapter 4, right? He encounters this woman who thinks that she needs water, um, and, and, and Jesus tells her that I have the water that you need. They're asking for water, but they don't know about the water that they truly need. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John 4, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The water that Jesus has is living water, and this living water is something far more spectacular than anything that they're seeking. Um, so, so if you think about it this way, then there's, there's physical life and death, and then there's life that goes beyond this, right? There, there, there's some sort of life that goes beyond just the life that we're talking about. We already sort of know this. Um, we have a way of describing um, times that are most enjoyable or most poignant in your life as the times when we feel truly alive, right? When you are on uh, vacation, you say, you know, this is truly living. This is the life. If you go to like, I think three out of four of every vacation condos, somewhere in there have some poster on the wall that says something like, this is the life. This is, this is true life. There's like biological life, that's you at work uh, Monday through Friday, but then there's the real life, that's you when there's a beach somewhere, uh, somewhere nearby. Or, or you remember um, Mel Gibson in Braveheart and uh, that quote, every man dies, but not every man really lives. And that becomes the senior quote of choice for uh, generations after that. Um, but there, there's a sense of like, there's, 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 there's this boring life and then there's real, true life. There's being physically alive, but then we intuitively feel that there's more to life than just biological life. And what we discover is that this, this thing that is... That is um, I think apparent to all, uh, all men, is actually a biblical truth that we don't quite really understand until, until we come to a more Christian understanding of it. It's, it's, it's something that I think we all feel um, in, in Christ or out of Christ, but it's something that you don't truly experience and understand until you are in Christ. Um, so, for instance, start, start with death. There is physical death but then there's spiritual death, right? There's, there's physical death, and then there's spiritual death. Spiritual death is being cut off from God. Ephesians 2.1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. They had physical life. They were walking around, 
Um, but they were dead in their sins. They were cut off from God. Ephesians 4.18, those who are living in sin are alienated from the life of God. Colossians 2.13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So to be living in sin, cut off from God, is spiritual death. It's to lack the life that we really truly crave. It's to be in spiritual death. The men who don't truly live then are those that are cut off, um, that, are, that are living cut off from the life of God. And this spiritual death, uh, we know, culminates in the ultimate death, which is the second death. Revelation 21.8 tells us about this. But the cowardly, unbelie unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, uh, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Spiritual death culminates in the eternal judgment of hell. That is the second death. But then you have the opposite. There's the, the opposite is before us as well. You have spiritual life, which is the life that Jesus offers. This is how it, it's, and you see this throughout the Gospel of John, because this is how John introduces Jesus to us in John 1, 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So there was death, but then suddenly this man shows up that has life inside of him. Real, true life. The life that everybody is actually seeking. Jesus explains this later uh, in John 10.10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus comes with, with the life that we seek inside of him. He came with the stated purpose of taking the overflowing life that was in him and giving it to us and bringing it to us. When you have life from Jesus, you have life overflowing from your own heart. It's pouring out of you and spilling out into the world. Think about um, just uh, from a, like if you're into military history, one of the things when you go way back, when you're analyzing how defensible a town is, you know a town is defensible when it has a well inside of it. If it has a source of water inside of it, then this is a, a town that can withstand a long siege, right? If it doesn't have water inside of it, you just lay siege to it for a few days and they have to surrender because they're all going to, they're all going to die of thirst. But if you have a well inside of you, you know that you can withstand a long siege because you have life coming up inside of you. And, and Jesus says, when you have him, you have that life in you. You have life coming up inside of you. And just as spiritual death culminates in the second death, spiritual life culminates in eternal life. It, it, it turns into this eternal life. John 3.16, we should all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, have eternal life inside of him. Um, and, and if you think about that for a moment, um, I was not a great um, uh, math scholar in college, but I did make it through calculus. And, I, and one of the things that I remember that still stands out in my mind is the, um, the amazing things that happen when you multiply any number by infinity, right? It, it's kind of like at the root of calculus is, the, is you bring in infinity and all of a sudden crazy things happen. And what happens is any number, any number of any significance multiplied by infinity becomes infinite. Um, and, and I think that that's a really interesting observation when you think about, okay, God comes to you and he puts eternal life in you. 
take your life and multiply it by infinity, eternal, okay? And that's what happens when you have this life inside of you. This is why this life is something that overflows and pours out, fills the streets. Now, this is, I think, actually a really common line of argumentation for Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. Uh, this idea that, that he says, like, I am, there's this thing that you're looking for, this life that you crave. You feel uh, an innate need or hunger or a thirst for this life. And this thing that you're looking for is what I am. He, he does this a bunch of times throughout the Gospel of John. Um, he, he shows up to a crowd that is hungry. He multiplies the bread loaves and he feeds them. He satisfies their hunger. But when he's all done feeding the starving crowd, he then says, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. I'm the thing, that, this thing that you're hungering, I, that bread that you think you need, that's me, but it's the life that is in me. I'm the bread of life, John 6, 35. In John 8, 12, I am the light. I uh, remember in John 1, he said his life was the light of men. He says, I am the light. You feel like the world around you is dark. You can't see, you can't figure out what's happening. I'm the light that you're craving, that you need. Uh, John 10, 7, I am the door. You feel trapped in, you feel like, like you're trapped and you can't escape. I'm the door that you're looking for, that you want to get out of. Um, I am, uh, John 10, 11, I am your shepherd. You feel lost, you need a guide. I am the shepherd. I am the way, the truth, the life, the true vine, the resurrection, the life. He goes on and on throughout the Gospel of John, identifying what people think they need and saying, I am uh, that. And what you find is that what he's really saying is, um, you, can, you can put whatever direct object you want on that, on the I am the bread, I am the water, I am the light, I am the door. And what you really find is the direct object doesn't matter so much because, because what he's revealing is he is the I am. He, he is the one who is. He is the one who has infinite being and existence in himself. And he is the one that we're actually searching in all these different ways. Man, he is the one that all that mankind is searching for, hungering for, thirsting for, longing for. All of it finds its true fulfillment, its lasting and satisfying fulfillment in him, the one who just is. Because he's really um, revealing the fact that he is the I am. And I think that all Christian faithfulness is rooted in receiving this truth by faith, right? He is this eternal life, and we receive that by faith. All who believe in him receive that life inside of them. So really, what I'm unpacking here is what we could describe as the complete and total sufficiency of Christ. The complete and total sufficiency of Christ. Not just the fact that his death is sufficient to atone for all your sins, um, which normally in, in, uh, when theologians talk about the sufficiency of Christ, they're, they're speaking of the fact that he, his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to atone for all of your sins. Totally true. Um, totally um, valid. But I'm, I want to push it a little bit further and, and argue for the total sufficiency of Christ's life for you. Not just for the atonement of your sins, but for the life that you seek to live. So it's not just the fact that his death is sufficient to atone for all your sins, but the fact that Jesus Christ is so infinite in his life that his life in you is the overflowing answer to everything that you're looking for. Everything in your life, everything is, is another one of those direct objects that can be put on the end of his I am. Humor me for a, a moment in a brief theological sidetrack here. Um, you, you may have heard what um, theologians refer to as the doctrine of divine simplicity. 
the doctrine of divine simplicity. This is how when we're trying to describe um, what God is like and, and the nature of God, one of the central um, theological truths that we affirm is the doctrine of divine simplicity. In a very um, simple sum- summary, possibly overly uh, simplistic summary, the doctrine of divine simplicity um, says that you can't divide up the divine essence. God's being is not something that you can chop up and, and, and divide, uh, divide up. It's all, uh, it is always one. Uh, so whatever, whatever God is, um, or wherever God is, all of God is that all of God is there. You can't ever get like a little piece of God that's distinct from the rest of him. That's the, in essence, the doctrine of divine simplicity. So whatever or wherever God is, all of God is that, is there. Um, Now there's a lot to say about that doctrine, but I just want to point out one um, brief little implication. If I say that wherever God is, all of God is there, then, then that means that God's omnipresence is not like a huge ball of dough that's being rolled out across um, this whole universe, getting thinner and thinner the farther you push it out. Um, God is not omnipresent with us here this morning by having one small part of him uh, be here while the rest of him is busy elsewhere. Wherever God is, the entirety of God is there. So all of God is here. All of God is omnipresent. And everywhere you go, all of God is omnipresent there. All of him. Um, Now, apply this for a moment to what we were saying about Jesus and the life that he gives. Jesus Christ has in himself eternal, infinite, overflowing, all-sufficient life. And that life that he has is given to you in the gospel. And um, via the doctrine of divine simplicity that I was just describing... Wherever that life is, all that life is. Okay, wherever that life is, all that life is. So that means what Christ is, he is exhaustively for you. All of it for you, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't matter the fact that there will be tens of, of billions of um, saints in the resurrection does not mean that you're only getting one ten billionth of him. Because you don't divide him up. You don't roll him thin. Wherever Christ is, all of Christ is there. Whatever Christ's life is, all of Christ's life is there with you. Um, You get the entirety of it. I say this because I I can remember as a little kid thinking about like, um, you know, being taught how to pray. And and being taught that like, so it's kind of like Jesus is your best friend. And you can just talk to him whenever you want to uh, by praying to him. And I took that very seriously. Okay, so I've got this friend, a best friend, and I can pray all the time with him. Until one day when I look and I see this kid next to me, and it's like, oh, you think he's your best friend, you know? And, and it was like, I actually felt like I was being wronged that, that, that this thing that I thought was this exclusive relationship I had, apparently it's pretty cheap because everybody seems to have it. And, and it seemed like that took away somehow from what I actually had in Christ. But that's just not how it works. All of Christ is there. Whatever Christ is, all of him is there. So this is why I need to say, um, or this is why I say that we need to understand the incredible sufficiency of the life that we have in Christ. It means that the life of Jesus is not just 
sufficient to lift someone up who is at the very bottom of life, like the Samaritan woman at the well, right? You, you, you can understand the Samaritan woman at the well, she's had a rough life, and he says, listen, I've got more than, you know, your life is kind of empty. I can, I can give you more than that. Well, it's not kind of, it's not very surprising because she is at the bottom, you know? She, she is, she's been destroyed by everything, and he says, I have the water that you really need. I've got, I've got more than what you have. But then he shows up at the Feast of Booths with an entire nation at the very top of everything. And he shows up and says, also, I have more than, than what you have. I have what you really need. All of you are looking for what I actually have. And what I have, I have with complete sufficiency for every single one of you because the entirety of Christ is there for each of the people that come and receive him by faith. Now, um, as good as good. Re- Protestants. We understand the sufficiency of Christ with regard to our salvation, but I want to, um, I want to press on a little bit on how this sufficiency works, um, how it works its way out in the rest of our lives, okay? So, so Paul tells us in Colossians 2, 6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you have received him, so walk in him. So again, I, I refer to you all as, as um, good Reformed Protestants, so you have an understanding of how your salvation is something that, that God gives you. You didn't meet him halfway. It was, it was entirely his work when he brought you to life. You were a dead corpse when Jesus came to save you in your spiritual death. So just like Lazarus in uh, John 11, you contributed nothing to your salvation but the ripe smell of death. Right? That's, that, that's what we bring is, is the stench. And then God comes in and in his mercy um, brings us to life, brings us to life out of that. So you were saved totally by the work of God and not by what you did. But having been saved, how do you then walk? Well, Paul tells us, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Your, your life of faith should be lived out in the same way that your, your reception of God's salvation was, was worked out. As you have received him, so, uh, so walk in him. You were saved totally by the work of God and not by what you did, but having been saved, how do you then walk? And I think that this is really tough. I think this is really kind of hard uh, to figure out because we know that having been saved, we are now called to obedience, right? I think of the, the Great Commission. Baptize them and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Okay, baptize them and then teach them to obey. So we're called to a life of obedience. The temptation is to think that salvation is of grace, but then after we're saved, we're supposed to obey. So we shift to a works. So the, the, the grace stuff refers to our salvation, but our sanctification and the rest of our life, that's where we kind of swift, uh, shift to, to works. But it's really important to understand that obedience for a regenerated Christian is fundamentally different than obedience to those that are outside of Christ. Um, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Your obedience flows out of the salvation and grace that you've been given, and it works in a very similar sort of way. You obey from a position of grace and spirit-filled power. All Christian obedience flows from resting in the perfect sufficiency of Christ. It might, it might look the same on the outside, right? Um, two people um, that, are, that are both doing something that God has said you're supposed to do. One is a Christian and one is not a Christian. On the outside, those two people doing something like not killing someone, right? Thou shalt not commit murder. They both managed to not murder somebody today. 
on the outside, it looks pretty similar, okay? I don't know that you can detect a real significant difference between those two, but I'm arguing that, that on the inside, that those that are obeying in Christ, it flows from a very different sort of source and it works in a very different sort of way than it does for somebody who's outside of Christ. Fundamentally, it is different on the inside. And, and let me give you an example. Um, think of a strong impulse that you know is sinful, but it still easily controls you. Okay, something you identify as a sin in your life, but it's a sin in your life that regularly gets a hold of you and you feel very controlled by it. You feel like you're at its mercy. Uh, it could be a, a lustful, a lustful um, sexual immorality that gets a hold of you and it pulls you in a certain direction and you feel like you're at its mercy when it gets a hold of you. It could be a, a spirit of anger where there are certain things that provoke you and you get red in the face and, and, the, and it just, you can't let it go. It gets you angrier and angrier and you're, and you're controlled by that. It could be bitterness, uh, um, a, uh, a resentment against somebody else. Uh, uh, you're jealous of something that somebody else has, or there's a sin against you that you cannot let go, and it just controls you again and again. And we could go on and on. Worldly sorrow, or who, who knows what else. These kinds of emotions that can get a hold of you and that can control you. Now, ask yourself this. Ask yourself this. What, in that moment, when that sinful desire has a hold of you like that, what are you desiring that Christ is not so much more than that? Okay, what, what's the direct object of your desire that Christ is not that same direct object, but so much better and so much more, uh, so much more full? In fact, infinitely so. Um, what are you desiring that Christ is not so much more than that? Think of Jesus throughout the book of John saying again and again, I am, I am the bread, I am the water, I am the life. Whatever, whatever you think you are looking for, Jesus is saying, I am fundamentally the ultimate satiation of that desire. Now, oftentimes that desire is twisted and it has to be made right in Christ. But, but the things that we're, that we're captivated by these desires for, if we think about it and, and we consider scripture very much, we will find that actually that thing that we long for, Christ is the satiation of that desire and he's the infinite satiation of that desire. I am the wealth. I am the health. I am the love. What do, you, what do you need, what do you desire that Jesus is not that, is not clearly the fulfillment of that? And what he is, as we've seen, he is eternally and infinitely that for you, specifically for you. So you can fight lust, you can fight depression, you can fight jealousy, you can fight all of these things with a whole lot of effort and work. Right? You can have like a list of things you're going to do to work on, on putting this thing to death. And you can slave away at trying to get control of it by your own efforts. Or you can fight them simply by resting in who Jesus is. By resting and receiving who Jesus is for you. And that's how you end up fighting those sins. That's, this is why I say then that, um, that your um, you're confronting these kinds of sins in your life. Your obedience comes from a fundamentally different place than it does if you were outside of Christ. And it comes from fundamentally resting in Christ, simply receiving who he is. As you receive the Lord Jesus, so walk in him. It plays out in your life like that. 
all Christian obedience, I want to argue, is rooted simply in resting in Christ, in receiving what he has given. Yes, it's obedience. Yes, there are works that we perform. But it's this weird, crazy thing that God does where our obedience comes by faith, by resting, by receiving, not by earning um, and, and slaving away. Or let me come at, let me come at it from another angle. Um, one of the things that I think can be particularly paralyzing is not so much the temptation that lies before us, but the terrible record of sin that lies behind us, right? You, you, can, you can say, like, there's all this temptation in front of you, but it's one thing to just face temptation in front of you. It's another thing to face temptation in front of you with a whole lot of guilty sin behind you. It feels, it feels like you have a momentum that must carry you into, uh, into certain temptations. It feels like you're on this kind of predetermined path because you have all this compromise in your, in your background and in your history that therefore it seems like it has to, you have to then um, capitulate to coming temptation before you. So one of the things that, that is paralyzing is the temptation, not the temptation before us, but the record of sin behind. The grief and sorrow over the mess that you've made of your life can trap you in a little prison house of despair. And, and, then, and then you feel like this is, I, this is my prison and I can't get out of it. The sin is certain because I'm in this prison. And it's weird because I, you know, the, the 10-year-old boy can find great pleasure in picking at his scabs. And you can sit there and say, that's gross and vile and disgusting. And mom can say, stop it, stop it. But for some weird reason, he's going to get a kick out of, you know, picking away at that scab. Um, but the, it's gross and inexplicable, except to him. But we have our own version of that same vice. We have, we have this own version where, where we um, sit and we'll pick at our own spiritual scabs. We'll just sit and pick and, and we can be told again and again to quit it. But for some weird perverse reason, we're, we're drawn to our past sins and hanging on to them in some way. Your past failures haunt you. And they're, and they're always there in your mind, right? And the condemnation that you feel from those sins, it starts to feel like a trap, a, a, a set of prison bars that you cannot uh, get out of. But again, this is where understanding the sufficiency and the, the totality of Christ and his life for you can become so powerful. Simply understanding who Christ is and what he has done and then realizing that what he did, he definitively accomplished for you. He definitively and infinitely accomplished that for you. And it becomes the most freeing thing in the world. The most, the most freeing thing in the world because that is who you are. That infinite life is who you are, and it blows out of the water all of your past sin, all of these um, regrets that, that tend to haunt you. I think of, of Jesus' words when he raises Lazarus from the dead, where he just says, Lazarus, come forth, stand up, walk out of it. Just, just walk out of it. Um, he doesn't say, Lazarus, roll around in there for a while, feel sheepish and guilty for what you did, or Lazarus, come out in grave clothes, with the grave clothes on you for the next year so everybody knows what a bad boy you've been, right? He, he, he doesn't say, hang on to these things. He just says, listen, I'm the one with infinite life in me. I say, boom, you get that life. Get up and walk out, walk out. Because, and because you have that life in you, you're not identified with those grave clothes anymore. I love it. He, he, he simply says, he actually says two things. He says, Lazarus, comes for, come forth. And then next his line he has is, loose him, let him go. 
Just take the grave clothes off because that's not who you are. And, you, and, and it's not some lie. It's not some duplicity that he gets to take the grave clothes off because Christ's infinite life is in him and that's who he is now. He is living. So you are free. All your obedience from this day on flows not from work and effort and slaving to be a better person, but from simply resting in Jesus Christ and in what he has done for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are the author of life and the giver of all good things. You are the source of every blessing and you pour out your blessings with such generosity. Father, we, th we are surrounded by the beauty and the joy of your goodness on all sides and we receive all these things as a small down payment of the joy to come. But Father, we can only look to that joy to come with the eye of faith and we can only open that eye of faith if you give it. So we ask that you would pour out your spirit on us. Open our eyes that we might look clearly to the life that is to come, that we might know that we have that eternal and infinite inheritance. Father, create that faith in us that it might become an overflowing well in our hearts that would fill our, our hearts, our lives, our families, this church, and this town with gospel hope. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen. Thank you.